1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 1. Now as to the times and epochs, brethren, you have no need of anything to be written to you. For you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. While they are saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly like labor pains upon a woman with child, and they will not escape. But you, brethren, are not in darkness that the day would overtake you like a thief. For you are all sons of light and sons of day. We are not of night nor of darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us be alert and sober. For those who sleep do their sleeping at night, and those who get drunk get drunk at night. But since we are of the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we will live together with Him. Therefore, encourage one another and build up one another just as you also are doing. And may God bless the reading of His Word. Well, as you can tell in this passage, Paul is continuing to teach and remind them of of events around the time of Christ's second coming. In chapter 4, verse 13 through 18, Paul's focus was on the Lord's second coming as it relates to the saints of God. When Christ comes back at His second coming, there will be the resurrection of the saints and the rapture of the living saints. So I think we will definitely go through uh, the future tribulation period. So in, the, in chapter 4, he was dealing with the second coming as it relates to believers. Now in chapter 5, in the first three verses, he relates again the second coming, only this time his focus is on unbelievers. So that's somewhat of the change in focus. Now when you talk about eschatology, the study of end times, I realize that many in the church have many questions about eschatology and that's understandable. It's always a challenge to try to fit all the pieces of the eschatological puzzle together and people come up with different views. I understand that. So many don't know whether they're premillennial or amillennial or postmillennial. And some are so hopeless and thinking they'll ever figure it out, they become panmillennialists. Believing that just it's all going to pan out at the end, so I don't know about the rest of it. But even if you haven't figured it all out, eschatology is vital to the health of the church. Eschatology is important. Whether you have it all figured out or not, it is very important to the church. Uh, the coming of Christ is referred to as our blessed hope. Paul refers to that in Titus chapter 2. And it's our blessed hope not because it's a hope that will escape a future tribulation period. I don't think that's the hope at all. It's the hope of glory that we will inherit when Christ comes back. That's why Peter wrote in his first letter 
1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13. He says, Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit and fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And later on in verse 8, Paul will refer to the hope of our salvation. That's our blessed hope. That when Christ comes back, we will be absorbed in the glory of God forever and ever. And that is something that's very important for us to have as our future hope when Jesus Christ comes back. Eschatology is also important because no matter how bad things may get on this earth, we know that the final victory is ours through Jesus Christ when He comes back. So it can give us the grace to persevere through tribulation, through difficulties, through trials, because we know that when Christ comes back, everything will be made right. And we will enter into the eternal presence with Him forever. But also, oftentimes, eschatology is presented in the Scripture as a means to impact the way we live our life now. This is going to be true in chapter 5. It was true in chapter 4. Peter emphasizes, so do the other apostles, that it's a motivation for holy living today. So that whenever we we understand eschatology and we're mindful of it and we live in the light of these glorious future events, it should impact the way we live our life today. It can help us to navigate through all of our trials and darkness. It's like the ancient mariners who would quickly get disoriented and lost when when they're sailing across the sea if they don't look up and navigate by the stars above. And I think you and I oftentimes are living our life like a ship lost at sea. And we can easily get uh, disoriented and confused and not know which way to go. But when we look up and see the glory that's coming, when we look at heaven, when we look at Christ and His return, it can give us a path to follow which, which would be living a life to the honor and glory of God. So there's many good reasons to study eschatology even if we can't figure it all out. So now we come to verse 1. And Paul says again as he's writing to the church at Thessalonica, now as to the times and epochs, or you may have seasons in your translation, brethren, you have no need of anything to be written to you. So he's referencing now the timing of Christ's return. And it's primarily in the context of talking to unbelievers that uh, is the emphasis on the timing. But notice he references the times and the epochs. Uh, This is a word, this is a phrase actually that Jesus used after his resurrection in Acts chapter 1, verse 7. And his disciples came up and they wanted to know when was God going to restore the kingdom to Israel. And Jesus' response was, it's not for you to know times or epochs which the Father has fixed by His own authority. Now the disciples, when they asked that question, uh, there's a lot they didn't understand. I don't think they understood the nature of the kingdom either. And that probably plays into it. But the point that Jesus is making, it's not for you to know what the times or the epochs are. The Father has set them by His own authority. 
and it's not for you to know them. If there's any distinction between these two words, the word times refers to time as a succession of moments. Epochs or seasons refers to time as a succession of important events ordained by God. The important events of redemptive history. Those comprise the seasons or the epochs. Where time is just a general tracking of time. And again, what he's emphasizing is that uh, you don't need to know the timing of the Lord's return. Now, for some reason, when, when Timothy came back from Thessalonica and brought this report to the Apostle Paul, apparently some of the believers in the church were interested in having more information on that. Uh, some of them may have thought that, well, okay, Christ is coming back, so in order to be prepared for Him to come back, we need, we need to know about when, the times and the epochs. But Paul is going to emphasize, of course, that they, they will not know the exact time. He goes on to say in verse uh, 1, that you have no need of anything to be written to you. And apparently Paul had already taught them some of this information when he was there with them earlier. But he's basically just saying that uh, you can't pinpoint the time of Christ's return. Now in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 in the book of Revelation, there are events that must take place before Jesus comes back. In 2 Thessalonians 2, we're talking about a great apostasy that will take place within the church. You're also talking about the revelation of the man of lawlessness. But you can't pinpoint the time. These are just general indicators. But Jesus made it quite clear that no one is going to, to know for sure the precise timing of His return. Remember Matthew 24, verse 36, in the Olivet Discourse, Jesus says, But of that day and hour no one knows, not even the angels of heaven or the Son that is in His incarnate human nature, but the Father alone. In verse 42, therefore be on the alert, for you do not know which day your Lord is coming. Again in verse 44, for this reason you must also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour when you do not think He will. And then again, the verse I referenced in Acts 1-7, it's not for you to know times or epochs which the Father has fixed by His own authority. So, Jesus is referring to Possibly the, the uh, reference to 70 A.D. for some who are uh, into the partial preterist view. I'm very attracted to that view. That I think some of these, this passage in, Acts, in, sorry, in Matthew 24 are pointing forward to the destruction of the temple at 70 A.D. You've got to remember the whole passage began that way. There, Christ with His disciples are sitting on the mount all of it, of olives, and they're looking over and they're pointing out the beauty of the temple. And Jesus says, A day is coming when not one stone will be left upon another, but it'll be torn down. So obviously, that's in the context. And Matthew 24 has a lot that can be understood to apply to 70 AD when the temple is actually destroyed. But as we're going to see in a moment, Paul very much has. Matthew 24 in mind when he's talking about the second coming of Jesus Christ. 
So how do you harmonize that together? Is it 70 AD or is it the second coming of Christ? And my thinking is that possibly the way to harmonize this is to see a dual fulfillment like in the Davidic covenant. When the son of David is, builds a temple which is fulfilled by Solomon who literally builds a physical temple, but it's ultimately fulfilled in Jesus Christ when He comes who builds a spiritual temple. So there's a double fulfillment. And that may be the way to, to harmonize that. But even though Jesus is clear, we don't know the times or the epics, this has not stopped many zealous students of prophecy from making predictions on when Jesus would come back. Uh, the very first book, when, when, the, when the Lord saved me in 1972, the man who discipled me took me to a Christian bookstore and, and he said, buy that Bible. And I bought that Bible. And the very next book I bought in my Christian life was Hal Lindsey's Late Great Planet Earth which is a very dispensational premillennial treatment of the end times. Well, Hal Lindsey suggested that Christ would come back. He suggested it. He, wasn't, he, he tried to, to be somewhat cautious, but that he would come back around 1980 and no later than 1988. Obviously, he missed it. Edgar Wisenant wrote a book entitled 88 Reasons Why the Rapture Will Be in 1988. And he was wrong 88 times. In Korea, a group of Christians believed that Christ would return in October of 1992. And in preparation of that, they sold their homes, gave away their possessions. When Christ did not return, some of them fell into despair and even committed suicide. Very foolish. Harold Camping thought Christ would come back in 1994 he didn't, so he repredicted in the year 2011, and that didn't happen either. Jerry Falwell said in 1999 it would probably be within 10 years. He got it wrong. Jack Van Ampey predicted Christ would, would return on many different dates because he kept missing it. And after his last prediction that Christ would come back in the year 2012, and after that failed, he finally no longer claimed to know the exact date. A wise man indeed. Uh, Richard Phillips in his commentary said that you can go on the internet. I have not done this. But you can uh, go to a rapture index which gives you the advance warning of Christ's return. It looks at the newspaper. It scours the news. It looks at the Bible. And the higher the number, the closer we are to the rapture of the church. So again, people are, are still have a, a fascination with trying to predict the time when Jesus said clearly, uh, you will not know the times. It's more than just the day or the hour. It's the times or the epochs. So again, we, we don't know. Paul did not know when Christ would come back. Now some say he thought that it would come, he would come back in his lifetime. He never, he never adamantly affirmed that. He hoped Christ would come back, but Paul never knew for sure. But he certainly hoped and anticipated, but he did not know for sure. Uh, so it's interesting that uh, in this first passage, uh, Jesus is telling them that uh, they have no need of anything to be written to them. They're not going to know the time. They, well, he says, as to times and epochs, 
but I've already taught you about this, and what he taught, no doubt, was what Jesus taught in the Olivet Discourse. So now we go on into verse 2, and he says, For you yourselves know full well, because he taught them previously this, that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. Now again, remember when we were back up in chapter 4, I made the comment that much of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, 13 through 18 is based on the same subject matter as Matthew 24. We kind of went over that. So that it, that it happened post-trib, after the tribulation of these days, remember in Matthew 24, 29, talked about the coming of the Lord from heaven with angels, the trumpet of God, the elect are gathered to meet the Lord in the clouds. That's in Matthew 24. It's also found in 1 Thessalonians 4. So Paul clearly is tracking through Matthew 24, in my opinion, and that's why there's such a close parallel. There's also going to be the same in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. There are a number of parallels between Matthew 24 and 1 Thessalonians 5. For example, some of the subject parallels is that the time is not known. The second coming is referred to as the day of the Lord. He's coming like a thief. Unbelievers are unaware of their destruction when He comes. Believers are not deceived. Believers will be watchful. And there's a warning against drunkenness. So again, this passage continues the parallel with Matthew 24. So this is a very, just a very uh, interesting uh, observation to see that Paul is very much dependent upon the teaching of Christ when it comes to the second coming of our Lord. So back to verse 2. For you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. So now Paul is referencing uh, the day of the Lord. Now, the day of the Lord is a very familiar reference in the Old Testament. Many times it refers to historical events when God, maybe He'll send the Babylonians or He'll send the Assyrians to judge the wicked. And sometimes it's the wicked within Israel. But the day of the Lord was oftentimes referencing a historical event that happened long ago when God would bring judgment to His enemies, but He would bring salvation and deliverance for His people. So the day of the Lord could include both judgment and also salvation. So I think the day of the Lord is the very same event that Paul referenced up in verse 17 of chapter 4, when the Lord comes, the coming of the Lord, also in verse 15, the coming of the Lord in chapter 4 is the same as the day of the Lord. In other words, Christ comes on His day. The Lord refers to Christ in both of those references. But I think the day of the Lord is the same as the coming of the Lord. And this is a reference to the second coming of Jesus Christ. Again, I've said many times, I don't believe in a pre-trib rapture. I think that it has too many problems in my view. Christ, when He comes, that's He comes on the day of the Lord. And if you go to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 1 and 2, these two phrases are put and they're talking about the same event. And we'll eventually get there when we get to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 1 and 2. 
Now notice what he says about the day of the Lord. It will come like a thief in the night. So again, where does this come from? It comes from the Olivet Discourse. Remember Jesus, Matthew 24, verse 43, says, Be sure of this, that if the head of the house had known at what time of the night the thief was coming, he would have been on the alert and would not have allowed his house to be broken into. And here he's using it as a reference to Christ coming like a thief in the night. So this is the very same idea that the Apostle Paul is using uh, here in verse 2. Now when you think about what is, what is the purpose of a thief when he comes? He's going to break into your house and what's he going to do? He's going to steal, he's going to rob, he's going to hurt you, whatever it might be. So the idea of Christ coming like a thief in the night is not a description of how He's coming for us. It's a description of how He's coming for unbelievers. He's coming like a thief in the night. So you've got to understand that's the point that uh, Paul is emphasizing. A thief comes to steal. A thief comes to rob and to cause you loss. So unbelievers are in view here. So if your treasures on earth are your idols when Christ comes back, He's going to take it all away. So He's going to come like a thief in the night. So the first idea of the thief is that He's coming to do harm. So obviously it's not referencing the church, the believers, it's referencing unbelievers. The second idea associated with Christ coming like a thief in the night is that it's going to be a surprise to those who are not expecting it. Christ's return will catch people off guard. It will catch those who are unprepared and it will be sudden and unexpected for them. And that's why, because thieves, you know, when thieves are going to break into a house, they normally don't send a courtesy text and say, you know, I'm coming to rob you, so could you please leave your door open? That way I won't have to break it in. And go ahead and put all your valuables out on the table. They don't give a heads up on when they're coming, right? It's sudden. But they're coming to do damage. And that's why unbelievers are in view here with this reference. So, when Christ comes, the unbeliever will reap destruction and they will not escape. Notice how he says this in verse 3. For while they are saying, that is unbelievers, are saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly. So when Christ comes for us, it's not for destruction, right? We get either resurrected or raptured when Christ comes back. We get the gain of glory. But here he's focusing on Christ's coming and that, what that means to the unbeliever. For them, He's coming like a thief in the night. They're not expecting it. They'll be caught off guard. And when He comes, He will come and He will rob them in effect. He will take from them. Their destruction will come suddenly, Paul says in verse 3. Like labor pains upon a woman with child, and they will not escape. So Christ coming like a thief is a metaphor for the way unbelievers are going to receive Him. He's going to come to them like a thief. 
So Paul, by saying this, is reassuring the, the church as to the ultimate doom of their persecutors. Remember, the only tribulation mentioned in 1 Thessalonians is what they were going through in the first century. And basically what Paul is saying, this is the people that are persecuting you now, the people that are causing you to suffer, that are afflicting you, this is what's going to happen to them when Christ comes back. They're not going to be watching. They're not going to be waiting. They're going to be, they're going to be caught off guard. And Christ will come and their destruction will be certain and swift and they will not escape. So he's actually saying this by way of encouraging uh, the church. So again, if you look at how he follows this up in verse 4 and 5, notice the contrast. Now, but you brethren, so now he's talking about the church, are not in darkness that the, way would, that the day would overtake you like a thief. It's not going to overtake you like a thief. It's only going to overtake the unbelievers like a thief. For you are all sons of light and sons of day. We are not of night nor of darkness. So some people try to say that, you know, this Christ coming like a thief, you know, that, that applies to us as well. But the metaphor only applies really to unbelievers. I like uh, what F.F. F. Bruce, a New Testament commentator and scholar, said about this. He said, it is on the ungodly, however, that the day will break with such unwelcome suddenness. Believers will be prepared for it, not because they know when it will come, they do not know, but because to live the Christian life is to be permanently ready for the great day. So when Christ comes back, now we don't know when He's going to come back. The Scripture does give us some general ideas like the apostasy and the revelation of the man of lawlessness. But we can't pinpoint it. We don't know for sure. But if we are living a Christian life and we're striving to walk with Christ and to please Christ, we're living a life that's ready, that's alert when He does come back. And I think that's part of what, of what the Apostle Paul is saying here. So, when Christ comes as a thief, that's not a reference to the way He comes for believers. He doesn't come to rob us or to take from us. He comes to give us. He comes as a great benefactor. He's going to give us a great gain of glory. But for the unbeliever, He comes as a thief in the night. So believers will be alert and sober. Unbelievers will be caught off guard. They will suffer and lose tremendously. So the point of the thief metaphor in verse 2 is that the day of the Lord will be sudden with no warning for the unbeliever. Just like a thief breaking into your house. The homeowners have no warning. They're not prepared. It will be sudden. It will catch them off guard. Now, there's other references to Christ coming as a thief there's uh, three others in the New Testament. Two of them are in the book of Revelation. And they both have unbelievers as the objects of Christ coming as a thief. So it's all consistent there. But Peter also refers to the day of the Lord coming like a thief in 2 Peter 3.10. I want to make just a quick comment about this passage. Peter says, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief 
So this is very similar to what Paul is saying. In which, and now notice what happens when Christ comes on His day like a thief. The heavens will pass away with a roar. The elements will be destroyed with intense heat. And the earth and its works will be burned up. And then in verse 13, he says, but according to His promise, we're looking for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Now it's interesting because here, when Christ comes, the day of the Lord, and He comes as a thief, it ushers in the new heavens and the new earth. Because when He comes on that day, the heavens will pass away with the roar, the elements will be destroyed, the earth will be burned up, and then He references the new heavens and the new earth. Now what's interesting about that is that this is a problem for my brethren who are premillennial because their belief is when the day of the Lord comes, when Christ comes back, then He sets up a thousand year millennial kingdom and then at the end of that, you have the new heavens and the new earth. So they actually hold to two separate, distinct day of the Lord's. The first one occurs at the second coming, which Paul references. And this one refers to at the end of a thousand year millennial kingdom when the heavens and the earth are destroyed and a new heavens and the new earth is brought in. So they actually have to hold to two days of the Lord if you're a premillennialist. Now, I, that's, a, that's a problem in my view because in this passage there are two problems with that interpretation as I see it. The first one is the whole context of Second Peter 3 is a second coming. I mean, we find early on in verse... Uh, earlier in, uh, I think it's verse... Um, let's see, what verse... I think It's earlier in chapter 3 that the mockers are saying, when is... What, what about the, the promise of His coming? Which is a reference to the second coming. So at the beginning of the chapter, you have clearly Peter is thinking about the second coming and nothing changes throughout the chapter. And then he comes to the day of the Lord and the heavens will be destroyed, the earth will be destroyed, and there will be a new heavens and a new earth. And the problem with that is that, number one, the context is a second coming. There's no reference at all, secondly, to the, a millennial kingdom intervening so that you have to have two days of the Lord. And that's, uh, that's actually in, uh, again, Second Peter chapter 3. The mockers come saying, where is the promise of His coming? Peter is thinking about the second coming. He later calls it the day of the Lord. And when the day of the Lord comes, the second coming, the heavens and the earth will be destroyed. be a new heavens and a new earth. I think that's the better interpretation. Instead of trying to say there's two days of the Lord separated by a thousand years, which Peter gives no indication at all that there's a 1,000 millennial reign of Christ on this earth, he doesn't bring it in. He's clearly thinking of the second coming because the mockers are saying, where is the promise of His coming? So it's a second coming. He, he doesn't bring in anything about the millennium and then he references the day of the Lord. So I think the best hermeneutical interpretation is to see there's only one day of the Lord 
And it occurs at the second coming of Jesus Christ. And when Christ comes back, He resurrects and raptures His church. He judges unbelievers. He destroys the present heavens and earth and creates the new heavens and the new earth. And all of that occurs at the second coming. So the premillennial position in 2 Peter 3 trying to make this day of the Lord a second day of the Lord that occurs after a thousand year millennial kingdom has problems in my view. And that's why I don't subscribe to that. But anyway, these are issues that you can think through and and wrestle with uh, on your own as well. So I think in summary, the thief analogy is basically saying that the day of the Lord will be sudden and unexpected for unbelievers with no warning. And he's talking about the second coming. They will be unprepared when they meet the Lord in judgment and they will be condemned. So that's the first analogy that Paul uses to describe the day of the Lord as it relates to unbelievers. He'll come like a thief in the night. And then we go back to, uh, to verse 3. And he adds another analogy to the coming of the day of the Lord. The second coming. And here he says that... Uh, They will be saying peace and safety. Then destruction will come upon them suddenly like labor pains upon a woman with child and they will not escape. So now he's talking about labor pains. And this is the second analogy to describe the effect of Christ's coming as it relates to unbelievers. Again, not the saints, but unbelievers. I notice first off they say, They, unbelievers, are saying peace and safety. So what does that refer to? People will be saying, primarily unbelievers, will be saying peace and safety. I think there's probably two ways, two different ways you could understand this. First off, it could be it's during the tribulation period when the church is on earth, we're going through the tribulation. But those who are not in the church, the world united with the Antichrist at that time, will be eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building, marrying and giving in marriage, just like the days of Noah, because they're in league with the Antichrist. They are persecuting the church, but they have their life at ease at that point in time because they've chosen to align themselves with the beast and the harlot and all that kind of stuff. And so they're saying that their own experience is peace and safety. Because it's the church going through the tribulation, they're not being affected yet till later on. So it could be that this is a reference to their experience, what the unbelievers are saying, but they're oblivious to the impending doom. It's kind of like the parable of, that the Lord gave of the rich man and Lazarus. And the rich man was wealthy and they both died. And when, when he died, he went straight down to Hades. So this is the idea. This is one interpretation of the peace and safety. The unbelievers are saying it because that's what they're experiencing. But they don't realize that when Christ comes, He comes like a thief and suddenly devastation will come upon their life and destruction. But until Christ comes, hey, life seems to be okay. Okay. Because they're on the side of the, of the beast and the Antichrist, okay? 
So they're not experiencing all the persecution that the church is at that time. So that's one view. Another view is that these, again, are unbelievers or possibly even false teachers within the church that are saying to the persecuted church, peace and safety. You can have peace and safety if you'll just leave Christ and come and join us. So another way to interpret this is that these unbelievers who are aligned, either they're false teachers in the church or they're outside, they're saying, look, believers, you're being persecuted, you're being tormented, we understand that. Look, just come and join our, our side. And then you can have peace and safety. Just leave Christ, abandon your profession, and everything's going to be well. And their deceptive slogan was probably, hey, trust in the beast, he's really a teddy bear at heart. <laughs> well, not, not really. But he's the Savior of the world. He can fix the world's problems. Just come in line with the beast. That's all you got to do. And then you can have peace and safety and all this persecution and tribulation will end. Peace and safety if you just come and join us. So that's another way you can interpret it. It's interesting that this similar phrase is found a couple of times in the Old Testament. And this is what Paul may have in mind. For example, Jeremiah 6.14 says, They have healed the brokenness of my people superficially, saying, Peace, peace, but there is no peace. Now these could be false prophets within the community. But they heal the brokenness of my people, saying, oh yeah, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, they're, they're not going to come in and judge us. We're going to have peace and prosperity. But see, they heal the brokenness superficially. They're deceptive because there is no peace. And then Ezekiel 13, verse 10, in a similar line, it is definitely because they have misled my people by saying peace when there is no peace. So this very well could be what Paul has in mind when he's saying peace and safety. It's the deceptive word of people saying, hey, if you come with us, you'll have peace and safety, but they're lying or they're deceiving God's people. So something like that may be going on. But while they were saying peace and safety, then notice in verse 3, their destruction will come upon them suddenly like labor pains. So in this sense, what the, the believers will be tempted to do would be to, for the sake of peace and safety, leave Christ leave the church. And we know in Scripture it says that the love of many will grow cold in the last days. And they will be led astray because they love earthly peace and prosperity more than they love the Prince of Peace. So that's part of the deceptiveness that may be going on. So you have these people, these unbelievers, saying either of their own experience or trying to deceive the church, peace and safety... But then destruction will come upon them suddenly like labor pains. So this is again the second analogy of the destruction that's going to come on unbelievers. They're like labor pains. 
And the idea is at the end of the verse, they'll come suddenly like labor pains upon a woman with child and they will not escape. So again, referencing unbelievers. So several things here about the labor pains. Uh, Labor pains often come suddenly. They're unpredictable. Now a mother who has is carrying her baby, she has, you know, a general idea of of when these things are going to be, but she can't predict it precisely. So there's a suddenness, again with labor pain, suddenly they just start coming on you. And there's also in this context the, the, the notion of them being undesirable. They are labor pains. And you've got to remember, moms, that they didn't have any epidurals back then to lessen the pain. And giving birth to children back in that day, of course, was very dangerous. But it was somewhat un- undesirable in the sense you want the baby, but you wish you could skip the labor pains. But it all comes together. There's another idea that's associated with these labor pains is that also they're inescapable. The pregnant mom, those labor pains are inevitable. Once the labor pains start, again, the womb, what's in the womb must come out. And the labor pains cannot be avoided. And that's part of what I think is indicated by this second analogy of Christ's coming on the day of the Lord like labor pains. Is that the unbelievers will be inescapable for them. They won't be able to, to get away from it. Uh, it'll be too late for them to get prepared when Christ comes back. It'll come suddenly. It will be undesirable because their destruction comes like labor pains. And it will be inescapable. So the point of the labor pains analogy is that the day of the Lord will be sudden with no warning for unbelievers. I'm sorry, that's for the thief. The day of the Lord will be sudden with no warning. The labor pains is that it will be sudden with no escape. Their destruction will come suddenly. They will not escape. This is really what even in the book of Revelation we read of. These are very sober words. Because it says, Then the kings of the earth and the great men and the commanders and the rich and the strong and every slave and and free man hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, Fall on us! Hide us from the presence of Him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come and who is able to stand? There's no escape. When Christ comes back, He comes back with His hands laden with glory for His people. He does not come as a thief. He does not come as labor pains of a woman with child. But for the unbeliever, that's exactly how he comes. His destruction will come like a thief. The pain will come like labor pains and it is inescapable. They cannot stop it from taking place. On that day, all the pockets of unbelievers will be picked clean. All their treasures will be taken away. All their health and happiness will be removed and they will be cast into the lake of fire forever. 
So Paul had to remind the Thessalonians that they, you don't really need to know the times and the epochs of Christ's return. You're not going to know it. But when He does come back, you can know that the unbelievers who are persecuting you now, who are distressing you and afflicting you now, they will be judged. And there will be no escape from them. And that's why down at the end of this passage, in verse 11, Paul will say, Therefore, encourage one another and build up one another just as you also are doing. It's a day that there is a payday someday. And for us as God's people, we're called to wait on that day to come, to be alert, to be ready, to be waiting for it. But for the unbelievers, when Christ comes, it comes as a thief and as a bringer of pain. So when Christ comes back, you will either inherit eternal life and gain eternal glory, or if you're not prepared, if you don't know the Lord, you will suffer eternal death and destruction. So those are the sober words that Paul has, been, has already told the church, but they needed some more emphasis, and uh, he's doing that in these verses. So in conclusion, the day of the Lord, there's only one of them in my opinion, and it's the second coming. I don't think there's a future millennial, thousand year millennial with a second day of the Lord after that. You're going to have to work hard to get that out of Second Peter 3. I don't think it's in there at all. Secondly, the thief analogy, the point of it is there's no warning when Christ comes back. He's coming like a thief. They're unprepared. There's no warning. He just shows up and it's too late for them at that point in time. The point of the labor pains analogy is that for the unbeliever, when Christ comes back, when the day of the Lord arrives, there'll be no escape. There's no warning. There's no escape. Therefore, the word to the saints, which we'll look at more next time, is be prepared. Be prepared. And if you're here this morning and you've never put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone to save you, you need to do it. Generally, we don't know when the Lord's going to come back. You could die today. Any of us could. We don't know the number of our days. But one day we will meet the Lord. And if we stand before God without the blood of Christ covering our sins through faith in Him, through repentance and faith, then His coming will be like a thief and like labor pains. There'll be no warning and there'll be no escape. But Christ offers you the free gift of salvation now at this moment. Come to Me is the theme of our worship this morning. Come unto Me, Jesus says, and He will give you rest. He will forgive your sins, give you the hope of glory, and He'll give you rest. So may God open your heart to see the glory of the day and also the severity of the day of the Lord and turn to Him for salvation. So may the Lord bless this and we'll pick it up, Lord willing, next time and see what else Paul has to say about the day of the Lord. So let's close in a word of prayer. Our Father, we do thank You, Lord, that 
we can uh, look into these passages, which, yeah, they're controversial. People interpret them in different ways. Uh, But Lord, we thank You that we can all agree that one day Jesus Christ will come back. And Lord, for the saints, what a day of glory that will be. What a happy day when we'll either be raptured or resurrected, but all Your saints will be with You forever and ever on the new earth. And we will see Your face and we will worship and serve You and heaven will be full of glory. But for unbelievers, it will be a terrible day of judgment when you come back. It will be a coming like a thief. There will be a, a great loss that will be poured out upon those who are unprepared. And it will come for them without warning. And it will come for them without escape. There will be no hope on that day. And so Lord, may Your Spirit embolden the church to proclaim the Gospel. For we live in a world where Christ will come to them as a thief and give us the love for our neighbor, the love for sinners that we share within the Gospel that You might save more and more sinners to accumulate more worshipers for You forever. So use us to that end, we pray. In Jesus' name, Amen.